It's the 28th of July, 2015, and this is episode 234. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Stephanie's out today for her birthday. Happy birthday, Stephanie. But Andreas is here and we've got some topics to hit today. Hey, everyone. You ready for this? Ready. All right. So double spends. They're kind of like a boogeyman in the world of Bitcoin that most often come in the form of cautionary tales we hear from less popular altcoins. During the recent stress test, though, it's a problem that many merchants powered by some of the most popular and well-funded Bitcoin payment processors out there have become a bit more familiar with. Andreas, I've got a couple of notes I want to read from users who double spent either accidentally or on purpose. But before we go into the details of how they in particular did it, can you just talk about what a double spend is and why it's something that kind of is this scary thing in Bitcoin? I think the easiest way to describe a double spend in simpler terms is to consider it's similar to a chargeback on a credit card. Essentially, you're canceling the payment. Now, in credit cards, this is a well-known issue that causes untold misery to millions of merchants around the world who effectively receive money for goods, but then later on, that money is taken from their account or not even given to them because the customer has initiated a chargeback, a claim of fraud or dispute on the credit card charge. In the world of Bitcoin, A similar effect can be achieved by essentially a customer creating a competing transaction. They make a transaction that pays due to buy a flat screen TV. And then they make another transaction that spends the same money and pays it back to another wallet of theirs or sends it to their Coinbase account or whatever. It doesn't really matter where you send it as long as it's spending the same initial amount. Now, to do this, you would need to construct custom software or manually construct transactions. Your wallet won't do this. Your wallet recognizes when something has been spent already and then doesn't try or doesn't even allow you to create transactions that spend the same outputs to a new transaction. But with special software or with a manual construction of a transaction, you can create a competing transaction. So essentially now there are two transactions out there. One that says Andreas pays Adam for flat screen TV. And the other one that says, using the same money, Andreas pays himself. And the trick here is to make the second transaction get to the miners and get included into a block before the first transaction. And there's a number of ways you can do that. Make sure that the first transaction propagates slowly, or it doesn't propagate to all nodes and is not relayed very uh, preferentially. Or you can make the second transaction more appealing by increasing, for example, the fee that is attached to it. So if you send both transactions at more or less the same time, and you make one less appealing to the network through a variety of tricks, and you make the other one more appealing to the network, while the merchant will see the first transaction and assume that you're, that you're paying for this product, the rest of the network and perhaps the miners will see the second transaction that is a refund to yourself. And if that's processed first, the merchant will not have their money. Uh, This is only a problem if the merchant is willing to part with whatever goods or services are giving you before they have a confirmation of that transaction, meaning that 
They've accepted that you sent them the transaction. It hasn't been confirmed in a block yet, but they give you the flat screen TV, essentially, or they give you dollars in return for your Bitcoins, or they uh, give you a haircut in return for your Bitcoin, and then your Bitcoin doesn't show up. One of the big differences, it seems like, between a double spend in the Bitcoin world or the cryptocurrency world and a chargeback in the kind of uh, legacy currency world is that mostly is in terms of time, right? You can effectively do the same thing. You can undo what would otherwise be a permanent transaction. But in Bitcoin, it's like under normal circumstances, 10 minutes, because usually a transaction will be included in the first block and the average block time is 10 minutes. While for credit cards, we're talking about 30 to 45 days sometimes. So the window for this to even be a problem is, of course, much, much smaller. So why do merchants, in your view at least, accept zero confirmation transactions given that we're talking about such a small window? It's not even that big, actually. It's useful to think of propagation and confirmation as two different parts of the transaction lifecycle. And very often people compare the two inappropriately. So for example, they'll say, oh, in Visa, your transaction is instant, but on Bitcoin, it takes 10 minutes. That's not really true. Propagation of the transaction on Bitcoin or Visa takes a few seconds, and that transaction propagates to pretty much the entire network or to whoever's doing the clearing. Okay, so let's define propagation here. I would call that in my, you know, in my parlance, announcing. Announcing. So when, my, when I'm making a transaction, what my wallet is doing is it's taking that signed transaction that I made, and it is announcing it to the network, with the purpose being that as many people within the network, as many nodes within the network, as many miners within in the network should hear about it, because then that means that it's more likely that one of them will include my transaction and confirm it, giving it real solidity within the environment. I mean, you can have double spends that happen in two confirmations, but it's exponentially, exponentially harder than this sort of zero confirmation, kind of really easy stuff approach. The comparison is valid. If you think about it, on the Visa network, you only need to announce your transaction to one party, and that's Visa themselves. So the propagation time is the time it takes for the intermediaries in your transactions, who are the, uh, the authorizing bank or the issuing bank, to get that through the Visa network. But essentially, you're only announcing it to one person. On Bitcoin, you have to announce it in such a way that it propagates the entire network. But that usually only takes you know, 10 seconds to propagate across the entire network. It's pretty fast. And you can see that, for example, if you make a payment from your wallet to someone who has a completely different wallet that's connected to the Bitcoin network in a completely different way, the time it takes to, for the transaction to be noticed by the second wallet is essentially the time it takes for the transaction to propagate to almost the entire network. And usually that's no more than 10 seconds. Then there's the second part, which is settlement. Essentially, that's the clearing function. And settlement means when are the funds guaranteed available. And in Bitcoin terms, settlement is a progressive function, meaning that you start with one confirmation and that's settlement. Unless there is a network fork, that is a good guarantee. At two confirmations, the chance of a fork goes down. At three confirmations, the chance of a fork goes down dramatically, etc. And we use as a benchmark six confirmations because at six confirmations, the chance of a fork is infinitesimal. Now, in the Visa network, this settlement process can take up to 30 days. Uh, and, you know, a chargeback can occur even long after the transaction has been made. And so effectively, the Visa network may delay payment or may 
cancel payments and claw back the money, essentially taking it back from the merchant's account. Now, that's not actually a technical limitation, though, of the Visa network. That is a limitation of the types of identity and the way that the money works, right? Because really what's happening is that Visa, you know, they, as far as they're concerned, they have all of the information that they need to complete that transaction. But what they don't know is they don't know if the person who gave them that information is actually the authorized identity that owns that information and thus can actually make that purchase. Because if they process something and then at a later point they find out that, oh, well, we actually processed this on behalf of somebody who wasn't authorized using incorrect credentials, it sort of is on them because they're the ones enabling this trust layer so that people can do things that otherwise they wouldn't be able to do. You say it's not a technical limitation, but in effect it is because essentially what the limitation is, is that in a centralized, pull-based, identity-focused architecture, meaning the money is drawn from your account, it's drawn from your account automatically, or you incur debt. And that's based on proving identity in a very loose sense. We're using weak identifiers like signatures and IDs, which are supposedly checked by the merchants, but it's, again, a pretty loose system. Then if you have those technical limitations, both introducing the possibility of identity theft, having weak identifiers, adding identifiers to everything, and then depending on those to verify the transaction, then you need to have pretty big buffers for fraud because you're going to have a high instance of fraud on that network. Now, compare that to Bitcoin, where essentially the control structure of digital signatures is not loose, it's tight. And if you have a digital signature, that indicates ownership of the keys. And that is verified at every step of the transaction propagation in a very strict way, not might be verified, has to be verified, will not propagate the transaction unless it's verified. Even the first node you announce the transaction to on the network in order to propagate it will fully validate that transaction. So in that environment, you can achieve much shorter timeframes for settlements and confirmation. But the double spend is something that can happen theoretically at any time. What the network provides is guarantees that the probability of double spend decreases. It is highest before you have one confirmation. It then decreases once you have one confirmation. The only way to do a double spend is to have a fork, meaning that there are two alternative blockchains simultaneously on the network. And fork events occur for a number of reasons, primarily because miners simultaneously discover blocks or mine blocks successfully in two different parts of the network, and they propagate unequally across the network. That kind of environment will create a fork every, every day or so, and then you might have a two-block fork once a week or maybe once a month. A three-block fork is much less likely, et cetera, et cetera. So to do a double spend, you really have to get the timing right. First of all, if your initial transaction has sufficient fees and is propagating strongly across the network, you have at best a matter of seconds during which you have to simultaneously be racing to propagate the double spend transaction so that it gets to miners first. So within a few seconds, really, that game becomes more and more difficult. It's long before 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, essentially, the door to double spend is closed unless there is a fork. So that's why a lot of merchants will be comfortable with one block confirmation, unless what you're giving the other person is, for example, US dollars in return for their Bitcoin. 
When you're saying, you know, unless you're on a fork, just to emphasize here, even if a fork event happens every day, right? Even if there's a one block fork every day or, you know, a two block fork every week, you would have to actually have made your transaction during the block that is in contention. Yes. So if you made it after that, you know, or made it before that, then you are completely unaffected by this. And it is, again, just as difficult as it would be under normal network conditions. So we're talking about very, very small limit uh, windows of vulnerability here. When a block is mined, there's about a thousand transactions in that block. If a fork then occurs on the next block, then the thousand transactions that got into, let's say, the left side of the fork have an opportunity to double spend themselves on the right side of the fork, but only those thousand transactions, right? So you either have to be making transactions all the time, or you have to be anticipating and detect a fork as it occurs to try to double spend, but it's it's very, very difficult to do this. Really, the argument is that double spend under those circumstances happens because you created the fork on purpose. For example, if you're the miner who mines the fork, then you obviously know it's coming, right? And you can decide to propagate and fork the blockchain, put your mining behind trying to fork the blockchain. But in any case, the, the bottom line is that you have this very narrow window of opportunity. What has become interesting in the last several weeks, actually three things. The first thing is the stress tests. And what the stress tests do is they change the conditions on the network. Let's say, for example, I do a transaction for a tenth of a millibit fee. That transaction under normal conditions has sufficient fee to be propagated and confirmed within the next block. No question about it. Somebody's doing another you know, 20,000 transactions during a stress test at the same time, what that will do is it will have a tendency to push up fees. If people see that transaction pool is full and they can tweak the transaction fee, or if you're running software that intelligently adjusts for this, then it will start including higher fees in transactions in order to make sure that they get to the head of the queue to be included in the next block. And under those circumstances, the spread between the propagation time and probability of being included in a block for your first spend versus your double spend can increase. Whereas your first spend at the tenth of a millibit was sufficient to get it into a block, the blockchain is bogged down with a lot of traffic and you put one millibit in the sec ten times more fee in the double spend transaction and it gets the head of the queue. Meanwhile, not only does your one millibit transaction get to the head of the queue or very high in the queue, but at the same time, your tenth of a millibit transaction sinks to the bottom and doesn't get included for three blocks. Well, that's going to be a very successful double spend, right? When things are slowed down, racing to the front becomes a bit easier. The difference between tenth millibit and a millibit fee becomes more pronounced as there's more contention for that capacity. So historically, I cannot really think of any time besides that one fork that we had maybe two years ago, or I can't remember if it was a year or two years ago at this point, that was like the big fork. It was like 15 or 20 blocks or something like that. 26 blocks. 26 blocks, right. There you go. So I remember that one. And there were several people who got caught, uh, not you know caught like uh, they you know were, were captured doing it intentionally, but like they wound up unintentionally double spending. Well, there was actually, um, there was a few people who intentionally, as a proof of concept, double spent during that fork to show how it would work and how it could be done, and then refunded the affected merchants for the double spend because they, they had no malicious intent. They were simply trying to prove the concept. 
So I'm trying to think of other times besides that where I remember double spend being something that people were talking about in a non-theoretical sense. And I'm really having trouble. Uh, do any instances or, or events pop into your mind on that? I think the thing is you don't really hear about this because it's, it's, um, it's an area of the network where people are constantly doing tests. And in fact, even though essentially the Bitcoin network is designed to prevent double spend, that is the function of mining. The possibilities for double spend before the first confirmation are pretty good. I mean, you can do this. There are a number of tricks you can use to do this on a very academic basis. If you just look at it, uh, then the two transactions should propagate equally and they'll both get to miners in the order in which they were sent more or less. And therefore, the first one seen will get in. There's all kinds of reasons why that isn't what actually happens in practice. In practice, miners may choose to have a greedy transaction policy where if they see two competing transactions, they pick the one with the highest fee, even though they're both competing, meaning that they're spending the same inputs. They may pick not the one they see first, but the one they see with the highest fee. This significantly increases the chances of being able to do a successful double spend. And then you've got all of these little quirks in the networks that allow you to deliberately slow down the propagation of one transaction and speed up another. So you can take advantage in slight differences of consensus and relay policy and mining policy between nodes in order to ensure that what the merchant sees and thinks is a successful propagation of a payment to them. The rest of the network actually gets bogged down and slows it down and it doesn't get to the miners. And the one the merchant doesn't see gets directly to the miners as fast as possible. So if you take advantage of these quirks, you can massively increase the chance of double spend. People do this. And in fact, many of the merchants involved who have zero confirmation policies accept some level of loss as part of the risk of doing business and the risk of doing zero confirmation. So this isn't dissimilar from what happens in Visa. If you're a merchant and you take Visa transactions without signatures, and we see a lot of merchants doing that for amounts less than $25. It speeds up the checkout process, but it exposes you to a much higher risk of chargeback because a consumer can dispute that transaction very easily if they haven't provided a signature. Why does Starbucks give you a cup of coffee without making you sign the slip on a straight up credit transaction, which should require a signature? Because the increased throughput they can put through their line to sell more coffee is worth the 1 in 100 customers who will go out and do a credit card dispute and essentially end up getting a free cup of coffee. And it's worth doing that. So for that value, now they probably wouldn't be selling brand new Toyotas on the same basis of no need to sign, we'll take the risk. But for a cup of coffee, it's worth doing. Now, you've got to realize that that's the same logic that goes on in Bitcoin. Do, what do I deliver for zero confirmation? Well, we saw recently, for example, Shapeshift.io, they had a zero confirmation policy. They've had to back out of that. They're now at a one confirmation policy because they were one of the targets for double spends. Fully convertible liquid alternative currencies are not something you want to give out on a zero confirmation because instant delivery, instant redeemability has all of the disadvantages, right? It's ripe for someone to take advantage of. On the other hand, the example I gave before, which is I'm buying a flat screen plasma from you, then the real question is under what circumstances can I take delivery of that product in less than 10 minutes? And the truth is that even if you are in a really, really fast retail establishment, you probably won't walk out the doors before the 10 minutes are complete. 
So merchants who are selling higher value items can afford to delay delivery until they have sufficient confirmation. And the higher value it is, the more reasonable it is to delay. You know, a TV takes 10 minutes, one confirmation. You know, a car is three confirmations, a house is six confirmations. You certainly could wait an hour to give someone the keys to a house. Actually, a house is easy because you can repossess it. It's not going anywhere. It's difficult for things that you can drive away with. And it's even more difficult for intangibles. If you're delivering products or services, you mentioned Humble Bundle or the Shapeshift IO example I gave you of digital currencies or depositing cash, giving cash out at local Bitcoins or depositing money into a bank account that is overseas via wire transfer. All of these are difficult to reverse or impossible to reverse. So they're ripe for abuse if you give them on a zero confirmation basis. Hey folks, today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by my company, Tokenly, where we're helping individuals and businesses use tokens built on Bitcoin to enable new opportunities for themselves and their customers. Today, I'd like to tell you about the swap bot selling Tokenly, all capital letters tokens for $5 each. This token is a digital gift certificate sold by and redeemable with the Tokenly company for hosted vending machine and redemption solution services, and you can redeem them right now. Normally, a swap bot costs $7 per month, but when you pay with Tokenly tokens, you save $2 per month. These tokens can be purchased one at a time when you buy with LTB coin or XCP, and when you pay with Bitcoin, you'll need to order a minimum of two or more to get the discounted price. That minimum quantity is going to be going up to about 10 next month as we continue to kind of explore the possibilities with redistributors. Once purchased, these tokens can be sold or given or gifted and redeemed by whomever eventually uses them as payment for our services. In addition to their redeemable use, holding Tokenly in an address associated with your Let's Talk Bitcoin account gives you access to the private forums for SwapBot, TokenSlot, the big project board, and more. To check out the official Tokenly SwapBot, visit tokenly.com slash buy. And any questions or comments can be directed to adam at tokenly.com. The magic word for this episode is bot. That's B-O-T. Bot. You've got until the 4th of August to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener awards. Thanks for listening. Let's rejoin the conversation now. So I've got a couple of specific instances here that I want to talk about. Uh, you're right about the shapeshift.io one, and that actually is in the second example. The first example we're going to talk about is Coinbase, which in addition to doing the, to having kind of the same sort of vulnerability that Shapeshift did with zero confirmation policy, also guarantees that merchants who accept their zero confirmation transactions are going to get the money regardless. So essentially any double payments, they don't even uh, alert the merchant. They just eat the cost and just assume that that's a cost of doing business, which again, for them it is because most, you're right, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, there just isn't a problem. But in this particular example, I thought it was really worth talking about. So user Tim wrote in essentially talking about how he double spent almost 100 real merchant transactions accidentally during the stress test. And so here's his note. Quote, I believe low or no fee transactions are such a great thing about Bitcoin. I usually don't add much fee to transactions. Lately, I ordered a lot of digital goods, subscriptions, games, etc. online with Bitcoin. A Coinbase window prompted and I paid the amount, no confirmations required, but after a few days, the transactions were still not confirmed. Electrum is the wallet that I mainly use. It had problems syncing all week during the stress test. So I decided to move the remaining funds to a different wallet. Uh, and one of the issues why he had to move was because he had to restore the seed of his wallet every time he wanted to make one transaction. 
At some point, the wallet wouldn't even connect anymore and reinstalling didn't help. So we logged in on a different computer, which also had the Electrum wallet on it and did not have any notice of the transactions that he had made. So he thought this was weird, basically, and sent the, you know, tried to recover what Bitcoin was left into a different wallet than Electrum. And when he went back and checked a couple of days later on the other computer, all of the transactions that he had made during that period to merchants had disappeared, but he still had all of the stuff that he had gotten. And mostly the things that he had purchased were, uh, were from Humble Bundle. He purchased uh, over 80 bundles through their weekly bundle program. And then all of those, he still has the keys and everything like that, but the payments have all reverted. So none of the money actually is anywhere but with him. And there were a few other things he mentioned too. His question to us, what are your thoughts on, uh, you know, on Coinbase asking for one confirmation minimum and does a zero confirmation policy essentially make it okay to do this type of thing? So Coinbase sits really on the interface between traditional banking and custodial Bitcoin, which is a pretty interesting area because keep in mind, they control all of the keys to the Bitcoin that they hold on their servers and they have direct access into users' bank accounts. So presumably, if they are affected by this kind of double spend, they can go and recover large amounts by dipping into the user's bank accounts and making themselves whole. And therefore, they're not as high risk from that perspective to double spends. If you try to do deposits that you want to use to sell Bitcoin, for example, they won't give you dollars unless six confirmations have happened. So that's normal. So you have to wait six confirmations before you can sell Bitcoin that you deposit into Coinbase. I think it's six. It might be three. I'm not sure. You know, half hour to an hour waiting time on average for me. Essentially, they shield themselves from that risk. But you've got to realize that for Coinbase, a lot of the transactions that they do are off-chain, meaning that they do transactions where they're paying merchants from a Coinbase account to a Coinbase merchant account, which never hits the blockchain. It's therefore their own internal accounting. They can essentially confirm it immediately. It has the disadvantages of centralization, but it also has the advantages of centralization, which means they don't need to wait for blockchain confirmations. And they've talked to us about using their platform as a micropayments platform too, because just like ChangeTip, one of the advantages of using that type of system is that there's no miner's fee. It's a trade-off. The thing of it is though, is that that only works for people who are actually Coinbase customers. So in the case of Tim, not a Coinbase customer, using a, an outside wallet. Sending money to a Coinbase merchant who was accepting delivery on a zero yeah, sending money basis. To a but my point is, is that Coinbase offers, that's not like something that the merchant decides on. That's just how Coinbase does it. And so they actually, Coinbase eats the risk. And that's a fundamental difference because, for example, if you're using BitPay, you have the option to set the confirmation speed. So you can say, we'll accept at zero, we'll accept at one, we'll accept at six. So you can set, as an individual merchant, how many confirmations you want before you receive notification that you've been paid. And accordingly, if you're doing this through an e-commerce store, let's say your Humble Bundle, and you've set this up so that it communicates the API in your store, your store receives a message that says the customer paid. But when their store receives a message, you can tune that. So Humble Bundle could set that to zero, or they could set it to six. If they're with Coinbase, presumably what you're saying is they can't. But again, what they're doing here is that Coinbase is making the calculation that right now, convenience, transparencies of use, no hassle type of use like that 
is worth more than the occasional loss, a loss that they can address through their reserves, through access to customer bank accounts if it's if it's customer facing, or they can just include it as a cost of doing business. And you keep in mind, you know, the cost of doing business for something like Visa is almost 10%, meaning that if you're a merchant doing stuff with Visa, you accept that you're going to lose about 10% of your income to chargebacks, and Visa is going to lose 10% of all of the bank money that goes through it to fraud. And most banks simply accept that as the cost of doing business. They write it down as risk management and move on. It's not worth slowing down everything else in order to make that a smaller amount. So again, some risk you simply accept as part of doing business. And I think that's what Coinbase is doing here. And that's a healthy attitude. You know, I think this makes it simpler for merchants because effectively they can make the risk management decisions based on the actual product they're selling and how long it takes from payment to shipping. And they can evaluate how much risk that exposes them to based on the rate of uh, double spends or chargebacks they would have. There are ways around this. Keep in mind that there are technologies that we can use in order to allow for more secure zero confirmation transactions. And there's a number of ways that people are trying to address this in the network. One of the ways to do this, for example, is Mike Hearn's Bitcoin XT. And the first and primary feature that Bitcoin XT was forked for was that it relays double spends. Now, if you have a traditional Bitcoin Core reference node and it sees one version of a transaction, if it sees a second version of the same transaction, a double spend on that same input, it will ignore it. Not only will it ignore it, it will refuse to propagate it. Now, you might think that's good because that means the double spends don't propagate on the network. Unfortunately, that's not true because you can still propagate the double spend by transmitting it directly to one of the miners or putting it on nodes that ignore that policy and do relay those um, and somehow get it to miners. What it does is it ensures that you have this discrepancy where the miners can see the double spend transaction because you propagate it directly to them. But the merchant who received the first transaction doesn't see the double spend and therefore is not aware that their risk just went up because there is an attempted double spend. So Bitcoin XT was forked to relay double spends specifically to allow merchants to monitor the network after receiving the first transaction, look for the double spend, and when they see it, understand that they have a high risk transaction in this particular case, maybe hold the item for longer or not, deliver it. And you can do this, basically, you can set a window. You can say, okay, I'm going to wait until I see the first transaction propagating, and then I'm going to keep a window open for 30 seconds where I'm going to be watching for a double spend. And if I don't see it after 30 seconds, I think that gives my first transaction enough head start to get to the miners before any double spend. And so that, that's the logic there. So actually relaying double spends makes it easier for merchants to have visibility on what's going on in the network and make risk management decisions. Okay, so my company Tokenly has a product called SwapBot that basically is a token-to-token vending machine. You put Bitcoin or something else in and you get some kind of token out. And we looked at this question because usability a lot of times has to do with not making a customer wait. So the compromise that we wound up with was we alert the customer that their part is done as soon as the transaction is detected. And we let them put in an email address that's optional so that they can then be kept up to date as confirmations happen. And as the order essentially moves through various stages. 
So we only ask the user to engage with us until we have detected the transaction. They deposit and then they get tokens vended to them. We don't do any of that vending until two real confirmations have happened. And we've had really no complaints at all about usability. So I'm trying to think of like, is there anything wrong with that approach compared to this? Because it seems like we've really avoided an issue here that otherwise, you know, like people say zero confirmation is for usability. But like you said, there's a difference between propagation and confirmation. What you need is propagation. Confirmation is the thing that verifies it, but that doesn't actually require the user to care at all. Yeah, and I mean, zero confirmation really applies to a very narrow aspect of retail transactions, which are in-person, on-the-go retail transactions. And the truth is you've made a very simple risk management calculation that says that with two confirmations, you feel comfortable. And the customer really is not going to miss this token over 20 minutes. They're not going to be standing around waiting for the token. They're going to go on with the rest of their life. They're unlikely to be using it now. There are some limits with what you've done. Effectively, it doesn't allow someone to be trading tokens. And by trading tokens, I mean actively day trading, high frequency trading, algorithmic trading of tokens. You can't do that. If it takes 20 minutes to, to settle one and you have 20 minute gaps between buying and selling something, you can't be flipping stuff every three seconds to, to make a small spread. Your solution works. It won't work on some places, like for example, Exchanges that are trying to trade fiat and Bitcoin have to be able to handle rapid trades. And those all happen on a zero confirmation basis. And the way they happen on a zero confirmation is by the exchange taking full custody of the Bitcoin. Right, right, exactly. But at that point, you're basically just back to an old type of database solution. You don't really have any of the, I mean, like you're using the, the token Bitcoin as kind of like the on-ramp, off-ramp to the casino. But while you're in the casino, you're playing with casino chips. That, yeah, that's not Bitcoin, that's banking. And, and that's the fundamental distinction. When you go to custodial Bitcoin, it's not Bitcoin anymore. There are circumstances where that's necessary. You know, and that's one of the reasons why it's difficult for exchanges to do things on blockchain or to do things with multi-sig and things like that. They can do it for the inputs and outputs into their system, but then for the actively traded accounts, they have to, to have the ability to turn those around very quickly and do order matching and settlement. The other scenario is the obvious retail example that we hear all the time, which is, you know, it's, it's funny because not only is it the most obvious retail example, but it has become by extension the bane of Bitcoin's existence, which is this mythical cup of coffee. The cup of coffee retail environment is particularly difficult because it represents an absolute sweet spot for a well-developed centralized payment network. Like if you have Visa in your country and everybody has a card, or if you're using physical cash, the cup of coffee experience has been streamlined down to absolute bare bones. You can execute the entire transaction in approximately three to five seconds from the moment you walk up to the register, the time it takes to hand your card, have it swiped, confirm the amount, either enter a PIN, tap to pay, or simply swipe and print out a receipt if you even need a receipt. That whole process takes no more than five seconds. It's a single interaction. It's very low friction. And what that imposes for Bitcoin is this requirement, right, which at its current state, Bitcoin struggles to achieve that requirement. There will be a time when a combination of green addresses, escrow, micropayments, payment channels, and various other things 
can really facilitate that to the point where it becomes a completely seamless, transparent experience, very similar to how you see a credit card. And that's why I don't think that type of retail environment is the sweet spot for Bitcoin today. That's not where the friction is. That's one of the least friction areas in our economy compared to, say, remittances or a wire transfer for an import-export business or something like that. But if you take that benchmark, then you have to be able to accept payment and deliver product in less than 10 seconds with the possibility of double spend or chargeback and for an item that costs less than $10. And in that type of environment, you know, the, the risk you take is, is part of doing business. And then there's a range of things that happen above that, which go from the $10 to the to the $500 level, for example, a flat screen TV, where you have to make this, it's really starting to be a thin line between safe and not safe. How quickly do you deliver? Do you wait for 10 minutes? Can the customer wait for 10 minutes? And is it worth waiting for 10 minutes? For $500, yes. For $25, no. And then in between, there's this gray area where things might be a bit too close to make a quick judgment. And that's the area where people can take advantage of double spend opportunities to effectively play against the risk management policy of the merchant. And if they've essentially staked their risk management on the wrong side of that line, that can be expensive or can get expensive quite quickly because someone who exploits it will not just exploit it once, right? They're going to hit you again and again and again and again and again like a cash machine. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned um, Mike Hearn's Bitcoin XT and how one of the primary features it was initially created for was to rebroadcast and to be able to understand these double send transactions. So looking at kind of the other story I've got here, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but um, that's what they used to broadcast the attacking double spend. So it's kind of a double edged sword. I guess somebody who wants to do this type of attack anyways is going to, you know, manually form transactions or do whatever is required. But having that tool available, you know, to make it easier for merchants also does make it easier to do these attacks, right? It's an issue where half measures won't work. The default position of don't relay double spends, which is in Bitcoin Core, unfortunately creates this see no evil, hear no evil situation because the number of miners who will accept these kinds of double spend transactions and how to get to them, the mining pools, mining pools have different policies for how they validate transactions, what they'll accept, how they'll deal with fees. And so you can use those to to create these little loopholes where you can propagate the double spend transaction to them and, and it will get approved before the original spend. If you know who these miners are and you know where their mining pools are and you know the IP addresses of their nodes, all of which are not that difficult to find, then you can just connect your node directly to them. And if you do that with the three top miners who are likely to accept your transaction, the chance of that getting mined is pretty high. So meanwhile, Bitcoin Core is doing its, we don't relay double spends, do no evil, see no evil, hear no evil. What that does effectively is that the only ones who don't see the double spend are the merchants. The idea for Bitcoin XT is solid, but of course it only works if a lot of people use it. Meaning that if the merchants aren't implementing Bitcoin XT so as to have visibility in the propagation of double spends, then Bitcoin XD just becomes a channel by which you can get to those miners who have the policies that will allow you to execute the double spend. The merchants are still doing a see no evil, hear no evil policy, and they end up not taking advantage of this capability. Is there a downside to having pervasive adoption of the XT 
client? Because I mean, like, like you said, it seems like it's a half measure problem. But are there any gotchas that kind of have come out since uh, this has been released or since it's been played around with in more than the conceptual level? Well, I, I think the, the main issue is not really the issue of adoption of Bitcoin XT, but more specifically, the adoption of both propagation of double spend transactions, as well as specific techniques used to increase the flexibility of the network, such as the replace by fee and child pays for parent functions. Uh, we haven't mentioned these, but these have an important impact on double spend transactions, but also on normal transactions. If you make a transaction with too low fee, then the only way to get it propagated is to wait. Uh, and in that time, you might effectively want to cancel it. Since there's no way to cancel a transaction, the only way is to double spend it with a higher fee transaction that does get confirmed. So there's this whole situation that makes low fee transactions that just hang around forever and don't get confirmed a problem. There's two solutions to this. Replace by fee is basically the idea that if you create a transaction that has the same outputs, but slightly different inputs, for example, adding an input to increase the total amount, will then allow you to add a bit more to the fee and create a competing transaction, which doesn't double spend because it's still going to the same recipients, but has a slightly higher fee. And what you want to do is have the miners pick that one instead and cancel the other one. So if you send a transaction, turns out the fee was too low to get it included, it hangs around for two blocks. You send a transaction with a slightly higher fee, and that's the replace by fee. If we were to turn this into checks and banks processing or cashing the checks, and, and you know, instead of uh, a transaction and miners, then essentially what you're saying is that if you you know create a if you write a check but it has too little a fee that's going to be paid to the bank, then you can essentially write another check and try passing that around. And whichever one goes first will effectively be it. Yes, and there's a the variant of replace by fee that that I'm implying is the safe, fully safe replace by fee. Fully safe meaning that you can't change the payee, so you can't change the outputs because otherwise replace by fee becomes a zero confirmation double spend nightmare because essentially you're turning this what is at the moment an informal greedy policy among miners to pick whichever transaction pays the highest fee and allow double spend, you're turning it into an official policy of the network where as long as you pay a higher fee, it doesn't matter if it's a double spend transaction, it will get through. Which again, some people think that that might be a good thing. You're making it explicit something that is already possible under narrow circumstances. So the second one is called child pays for parent or CPFP. And child pays for parent, essentially you create a chain of transactions. So let's say I have a transaction that is giving you $500 for a TV, but I put no fee on it, right? That transaction is considered on its own. What if you create another transaction that spends that 500, perhaps back to yourself, right? You create it now. This transaction now depends on the first transaction, my payment to you. The outputs that are created, the $500 that is being paid to you, you can only spend that once it's confirmed, but you create the child transaction that spends it as if the first one had been confirmed and you add a lot of fee to the second transaction. And the policy for miners is this, if you see two transactions, one of which is a child, meaning that it spends the outputs of the first transaction, and the first transaction fee is insufficient, but the second transaction has more fee, what you do is, essentially you evaluate the priority of transactions, not on their own, but as a whole through the entire chain. So if there's two transactions chained together, you evaluate the fee per kilobyte of the entire chain rather than the individual transaction. 
that allows you to create a transaction that bumps up the fee on the original payment. So you, as a merchant selling me a TV for $500, Adam, you see my $500 payment hanging around in the network, not getting confirmed. You create a child transaction to bump up its fee so that you get paid sooner. That's nice because it aligns the interests of increasing the fee with the recipient, not the sender. And it also means that, obviously, you can't double spend the original amounts. This doesn't change the fact where the inputs come from, which is my wallet. Does this make sense? It does, yeah, actually. And I did not understand child pays for parent in that fashion at all. Um, so one question that I have is it seems like this is an incentive to miners, right? But it sounds like also you're stacking essentially unconfirmed transactions on top of each other. Can those transactions be contained? Can the child and the parent be contained and confirmed for the first time within one block? Yes. Oh, they can. That is currently policy on the network regardless. You can chain transactions today. And a chain of transactions can all get confirmed in the same block. So what happens there is, as these propagate out, let's say you have a whole chain, grandparent, parent, child, grandchild, right? Four transactions in a row, four different generations. Each is spending the previous outputs. It doesn't even matter if these arrive out of sync. Maybe you first see the grandchild, then you see the grandparent, then you see the parent, then you see the child. What you do is if you see a transaction that's spending something that doesn't exist yet, it goes in a pool called the orphan pool and it just sits there waiting for a while. Then if you see a, another transaction that actually creates the outputs for the transaction that's waiting in the orphan, if you basically find its parent, it's no longer an orphan. So you reunite the family and you chain them together. And this can happen over dozens, hundreds of transactions. In fact, there are certain aspects of the protocol that, that purposefully create these chain transactions. CoinJoin is a good example. So in CoinJoin, you might have several layers of chain transactions, four or five layers of transactions. And the network will basically store all of these orphans until it finds a complete chain that spans from outputs that are already confirmed in the blockchain, which is the grandparent, all the way down to the grandchild. And then once it has all of them, then they can all be moved into the mempool prioritized and sequenced and put into the block. The problem is that right now, when they're put into the mempool for inclusion into the next available block, each of these chain transactions is priority-wise considered separately on its own. That means that you might have enough fee to include the grandparent, but the parent doesn't have enough fee, so the rest of the chain stays unconfirmed for a very long time. We're trying to eliminate blockchain paradoxes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so child pays for parents in that particular case would say, okay, what is the total amount of kilobytes for grandparent, parent, child to grandchild? What is the total amount of fee across grandparent, parent, child, grandchild? And therefore, what is the fee per kilobyte of the chain as a whole? And how does that compare? It treats it as one transaction. It treats it as one transaction with the aggregate fee and the aggregate size and says, well, based on that, what's its priority? And that priority may be a lot higher. So the grandchild, the last one on the line, may end up paying an exorbitant fee, but it's, it's enough to, bring, to bump up the priority of all of the transactions, meaning that you then pay for the entire chain. And, and there's a lot of uses for this protocol. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see both RBF replaced by fee or double spend safe replaced by fee and child pays for parent. I wouldn't be surprised if we see both of these being included. Keep in mind that this is also a matter of minor policy. So a lot of miners run patched versions of Bitcoin Core that already implement 
child pays for parent or replaced by fee in various variants. Part of the, the, the fact that this is not uniformly spread across the network, in fact, creates exactly these race conditions that allow double spend to happen in a more fluid manner today. All of these events happen. This kind of came up as a topic because of this stress test, putting uh, more delay into the system just because there was such a backlog of transactions that weren't being processed, creating a greater opportunity for something like this to happen. Outside of those types of conditions, you know, is this something that we need to be concerned about moving forward? Is it just like, you know, just everyone has to make their own value judgments about how much risk they can tolerate? And like Shapeshift, you know, uh, Eric Voorhees uh, about, said about the Shapeshift attack where supposedly they lost like three Bitcoin, that is just, you know, a cost of doing business and that they expect stuff like that. And they're changing their policy now because there was this very acute attack. But that to this point, it just has never been an issue. Yeah, I mean, th this is the issue in general, which is... All of these little artifacts of the network, these small variations in consensus, the loopholes that allow you to slip things through, the question is how often is it happening and how many people are doing it and what risk does that pose to the network? What risk does it pose to the network as a whole in terms of the overall level of security? What risk does it pose to specific merchants under their specific risk management policies? And so double spend in itself is, is simply uh, a, a, it's a fact of the network. It's never going to go completely away. Um, or maybe it is. I don't know. That may, may have been a bit of an absolute statement. But it's actually really difficult to completely eradicate double spend. All kinds of things play into it. Transaction malleability, our old friend from the Gox days, is effectively the transaction malleability trick was used um, to do a, a, a type of double spend against the custodial account. Um, so these are uh, these are essentially risk factors in the network. Now, are they big risk factors? Not really, um, because in many cases, the risk is quite predictable and the merchants can individually assess that risk and make the appropriate judgments on confirmation according to that risk. And overall, that still makes the Bitcoin network the best trade-off between flexibility, fluidity, frictionless, borderless network, and the risk of chargebacks, right? The question is, how far are you going to go towards decentralization? And how many of these risks are you going to accept as part of doing business to achieve some of the other goals of Bitcoin, which is to be frictionless and decentralized and flexible and fluid? And of course, you can, you can greatly reduce these costs by going to a single provider, massively centralizing this network. But then what you're doing is you're shifting the burden of risk management of some parties like merchants who have the best information to make that judgment. You're shifting it to a network-wide decision to have less flexibility or more friction throughout the network. And quite honestly, I think the balance is right right now, which means that the merchants can make a choice. And that choice avoids us from putting the burden of double spent protection on the entire network through other means that would reduce the flexibility of Bitcoin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's episode featured content from Andreas Antonopoulos and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens. 
Just as a quick aside, we had a ton of fun doing this episode and felt like it was a really valuable one because it was interesting and educational on core Bitcoin issues that aren't generally discussed. They're just kind of talked about in an offhand fashion. We want to do more episodes like this. What other issues would you like us to cover in this same form? Send an email to adam at letstalkbitcoin.com or post your answer to the forums. Thanks for listening.